0: Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. As part of our series focusing on science expeditions in harsh environments, our conversations aim to shed light on fascinating projects that help us understand our planet and life on Earth better. I am Louis Noel, a graduate student at Rice University pursuing a master's in engineering management and leadership. For this episode, I had an opportunity to speak with Linda Welsenbach-Fries, the science communicator in the Department of Earth, Environment, and Planetary Sciences at Rice University. She is also an avid science photographer who has participated in several expeditions in Antarctica, including one aboard a research vessel that was taking samples from the Thwaites Glacier to help us understand the changes in the ice sheet. We will be exhibiting photographs from her expeditions at the Rice University Library this spring. This episode provides a bit of background on the Thor expedition through my conversation with Linda. We start off with Linda speaking about what Thor stands for and how it is a part of a large international collaboration. Enjoy.
1: Thor is an acronym for Thwaites Glacier Offshore Research. It is one of eight projects that is part of the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration. And this is a collaboration that is really big. And it's actually a joint with the Natural Environment Research Council, which is the UK's version of the National Science Foundation. It's the biggest of its kind in 70 years. And is multi-millions of dollars. There are eight projects of which Thor is one. And the purpose of this entire sort of collaboration is to study what is happening with Thwaites Glacier, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is Thwaites Glacier is very large; it's about the size of the UK, or maybe even the state of Florida in terms of its extent. It is very vulnerable to um, the rising temperatures of the ocean, so they want to know one what is happening presently. So, some of the projects are studying the active uh, dynamics of the of the glacier itself, and then there are others that are looking at what has happened in the past. So we can combine that with our present observations and past observations to better predict what might happen to that glacier in the future because it has a significant potential contribution to sea level rise. They're talking, you know, upwards of a meter, a meter and a half.
0: My goodness, that would put a lot of cities in uh, peril. Yes. Um, And so could you tell us the path that led you to be a part of this expedition?
1: Part of it was being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I started (laughs) in my position as uh, the science writer at the Department of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences late in 2016. One of the faculty, Dr. John Anderson, and his postdocs, uh, Lauren Simpkins, were working with several other scientists to write a proposal to be part of this particular collaboration. And they came to me and said, we have to write a National Science Foundation broader impact as part of this this Mm -hmm. proposal. And those impacts are important because basically scientists are required now essentially to communicate the results Mm -hmm. um, of their scientific activities to the public. So I was... There at the right place to help them write this broader impact statement, and as part of that, when we were meeting together and talking about what we wanted that impact to be, they wanted to know how would I feel about potentially <laughs> being uh, the uh, the outreach sort of um, person for one of the research cruises. Not all of them. There were actually supposed to be two or three of them as part of the mm-hmm. proposal, and they said, "Hey, how would you like to go?" and you know, report what the science activities on the boat were Mm -hmm. um, as part of this project. So I said, of course.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Um, Could you speak about your role as a science writer and photographer on the research cruise?
1: One of the things that I'd proposed to do as part of my participation on the project, if I was on the cruise, was basically to write sort of regular blogs. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you write a blog, you also want to have a lot of imagery to go with it. Images Mm -hmm. are worth a lot of words. And we had a a limit on the amount of data that can be transmitted once we get down below 60 degrees because everything is done by satellite, and most of the communications are for safety and navigation reasons. And so we all have a limit on how much data can be sort of moved off the ship and, Hmm. and back to the mainland. Really good pictures with some good text. That sort of combination was something that, I had not really done before, and so I did a little bit of learning along the way. Um, I also happened to be drafted to help out with a lot of the scientific activities, too, because Mm. they were shorthanded. And so that in and of itself was quite important and useful as part of my outreach activities because when you're actively participating, you have a better feel for the kinds of images that tell the story. Mm
0: -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, I can tell that uh, some hands-on experience probably informs some cool shots to take, and maybe put you in the line of action where you may get some shots you may not have. And I actually read one of the the blogs, and it was cool. It just walked you day by day of things you were experiencing, and it it seems like the expedition, or the, just to get there, is a, an adventure of it itself. So, could you kind of walk me through the the nature of the science cruises? You know, maybe like what happens at first, like getting there, and then some of the general work of the scientists? First
1: thing I want to say is this is my first and only cruise. I haven't done any cruises before this. I've been to Antarctica, which is part of the reason why they said, hey, would you mind going? We think, you know, you would make a good member of the team. Uh, you know what it's like to basically work under sort of difficult conditions and and help to get things done. Most of the research cruises to Antarctica leave from Punta Arenas, Chile. That is the most optimal location it's the shortest distance to basically work that is along the Antarctic Peninsula and down around into the Amundsen Sea Embayment uh, to study these very vulnerable glaciers. The uh, transit from Punta Arenas to the Amundsen Sea Embayment, which was our ultimate destination, uh, was going to take somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 to 10 days. Three to four day transit across Drake's Passage. Okay. Uh, And then another three or four days, essentially, to pass along the peninsula and into the embayment, which is a very difficult place to get to. We have satellite observations over the last 25 years, which is another sort of motivator because they had seen these dynamical changes in the glacier over this period of time. But we had very little sort of up-close data Mm -hmm. um, of the glacier itself to support what we were observing. This particular cruise that... uh, I went on was also essentially sort of a, an orientation cruise for a number of the projects. In fact, Thor wasn't the only project going on this cruise. We had Ghost, and this is a, one of the ITGC projects that is looking at how the glacier advanced and retreated and they're looking at the sort of the surface features of the glacier on islands and various other places. One of the other projects On this particular cruise was Tarzan, and they have a multifaceted group that does a bunch of different things, most of which is oceanographic. And as part of that, they were conducting sea trials for this particular uh, autonomous underwater vehicle called the Huguen. It looks a lot like a torpedo. It was bright orange. They did an initial test because we had to figure out not only how to get into the water, but how to retrieve it. We started that trip. It was beautiful. The skies were very, very sunny. And this is an area that's notorious for, for bad weather.
0: What time of the year is this?
1: We usually leave at the end of January. This was a two-month okay. cruise. So we were essentially leaving around the 28th of January. We were supposed to get back into port around the 24th of March. We were going to spend one day working out the kinks, the logistics on deploying mm-hmm. and retrieving the Hugin from the water. We have a special team of technicians that essentially assist the scientists in all their scientific activities on board mm-hmm. ship they're called marine technicians. It was their job is to go into the water with the zodiac and figure out how to retrieve this multi thousand pound oh, piece of equipment goodness. and get it back into the sling so they could haul it back on board. And when they went out to get it the weather had turned and the waves were really Uh-oh. high. But they did. They managed to figure it out. And then they were able to deploy it several more times when we actually got down to, to Thwaites Glacier.
0: Very cool. I'd want to touch a little bit about the conditions of Antarctica. So could you describe some uh, of the skill set or mindset uh, that are essential to be a part of an expedition like these?
1: The most important is to be able to cope with plans that don't go the way you expect them to. Mm,
0: okay. Always
1: have a plan B, even a plan C or plan D. Maintain sort of a a positive outlook. Make sure that you are being aware of how you interact with everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're dealing with very, very few people who get very, very little sleep. Yeah. There was something in the neighborhood of 50 scientists on this cruise, and there are less than 20 people who actually manage the ship and help us out with the scientific activities. Wow. It's astounding. Yeah, so being able to roll with it is really, really important. I think recognizing that it's more about the science than it is about okay. everybody's comfort. We're there basically to accomplish some really amazing mm-hmm. work. We have a unique opportunity. Everybody has to work together. Definitely. Um, the skill sets are associated with the science that you have to do. So obviously, okay. you have to understand how to run the equipment that you need to run and what data you're collecting and whether or not the data is actually good data so that you can solve problems on the fly, the ship essentially going toward its destination. It's always collecting data. okay. And that data is essentially the structure or, or the shape of the seafloor. Mm. And that data is collected with a device called a multi-beam echo sounder. So it's using sound, sound mm-hmm. waves, essentially, to see the bottom of the okay. seafloor.
0: So it's like more sophisticated sonar? Yes. Interesting.
1: They have an idea of the depth of the of the water column. Very interesting. And the shape of of the seafloor that it has literally bounced off of.
0: And I believe that word is that word called bathymetry, or is yes. that just the yes, science sorry. of the studying it?
1: No, that is it is the bathymetry. Okay, seafloor so bathymetry. Yes, I see. And What's important kind of about ocean, it is that yeah. different kinds. They know now, after many years of research, that the various shapes and structures that they see on the seafloor are definitely resulting from different kinds of movement of an ice Mm -hmm. shelf or sliding material through turbidity currents or Mm -hmm. you know any kind of obvious sort of marine geology event. Mm
0: -hmm. Is there any sort of like glacier you can tell like this was formed by a glacier a thousand, two thousand years ago by the seafloor, or is it mainly just for more recent studies? Like seafloor mapping?
1: Broadly speaking. The technology has been advancing uh, significantly over the last couple decades, and so the detail mm. that they are able to achieve with the multi-beam echosounder is amazing. Actually, uh, yeah. one of the goals of the of the Hugen was to be able to provide similar kinds of data, but at even more detail, because it would Interesting. be located significantly closer to the floor, mm-hmm. and so it could collect data at a much finer resolution than they can where the ship is sitting at the, at the sea surface.
0: What do we learn from uh, sampling glacier ice and the sediments, and why are they valuable?
1: Thor's primary function is looking at the geophysical sort of manifestation of ice sheet advance and retreat. And then the other part of it is that they're basically collecting the sediments because the sediments actually record a lot of information all the way back to the last glacial maximum about what has happened on the seafloor and what the ice sheet and the ocean have been doing over that period of time. And then they use that information from the past to basically model what potentially could happen in the future. I
0: see. So, yeah, very valuable for climate science in general um, and geology. So – Fascinating. Uh, What's the general approach for gathering samples?
1: There's two ways they do that. The multi-beam bathymetry is a good supporting activity because it shows you the places on the seafloor that are optimal for potentially collecting samples. Okay. Then they also use another sort of semi-passive seismic. uh, It's called a sub-bottom profile. Hmm. Basically, they they send a ping that actually can penetrate somewhere in the neighborhood of up to 20 to 30 meters below the seafloor surface. And so then what they look for, and this is actually one of my jobs on my shift, was to mm-hmm. spend about four hours watching, literally watching, each and every ping of the sub profiler and looking specifically for areas where there's sediment buildup in the neighborhood of, you know, a few tens of meters. Mm. Because those would be great areas to target for Gathering or capturing sediment using one of the, the corers.
0: Could you explain that a bit more how the corer works?
1: Yes. There's actually three corers. Okay. Uh, there is a core that samples just about the first upper meter. Okay. And there's another core called the casting core that is gravity. Core in which they literally has weights on top of it, and it it punches its way down into the sediment. Okay. And then they have a jumbo core which can gather even a deeper. It's it's heavier and can can gather even more sediment, a much larger wow. volume and much okay. deeper uh, section of seafloor sediment.
0: And then they bring it up and set it on a giant table and start doing the analysis, right?
1: Well. It's you have to like mud.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw that picture. It's, it's just like mud.
1: <laughs> so the the coring itself is obviously done by the technicians on board ship. Uh, they know what the right calculations are for the amount of, of speed and weight that are needed okay. at uh, a particular depth. They collect it, uh, bring it back up on board, and then it is lowered in a horizontal position. Then they essentially uh, leave the actual... Sort of moving of the core into the core laboratory mm-hmm. to us scientists, and so we have to literally pick it up, put it on top of a, a dolly, okay, a, and and wheel it into the core lab, and then we clean it up, take the lid off, and then literally start sort of processing the core.
0: Cool. What sort of instruments do you use to, you know, analyze the samples within the core?
1: The first thing you do is you use your eyes. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, Most of what you do on ship is prepare the core for shipment Mm. so that it can later then be studied by scientists. So the first thing that they have to do is they literally clean the core up. uh, Once you remove, essentially, the the cap, you scrape the surface so that you can actually see the layers. And that process can take several hours. And it's a very careful process because you don't want to disturb any of the layers. This is a fluid material. It's a lot like peanut butter. And and so you, you want to be very, very careful about not disturbing the layers, which can be quite fine. Interesting. From there, one of my jobs as a photographer was to actually take pictures once the core had been processed to also capture visually the cores, you know, from the top to the bottom to match it up with the actual description. The other thing that we do with the cores is uh, we subsample them for various types of scientific activities that really are time-sensitive. And then after that, the core gets prepared, essentially, for storage.
0: Yeah, how many cores do you usually take? We
1: collected 20... Did we collect 26 cores? I think we did. Or we made an attempt at 26 cores. I can't remember anymore how much we have. uh, (laughs) Part of not remembering everything is because... Everybody does 12-hour shifts. It is quite a day. And not only are you tired when you go to bed, you also have to somehow fit into that period of time. Email, eating, showering, laundry. And so probably you're up for maybe 18 hours. And so sleep deprivation is a problem. Well, and there's routine, and routine is good. With routine, you can basically start to not expend a lot of energy on making sure you're doing what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You basically reduce the amount of energy that you need through routine.
0: Yeah, it it involves a lot of thinking power if you're having to plan things every day. But if you have a routine, it eliminates a big chunk of that. I'm sure it varied like day by day. But what was a typical day like on the Thor expedition?
1: So for me, my shift was from noon to midnight. I would get up around 10, 10, 30, 11, okay. and, and I might actually process images that I took the day before or work on the blog that I would started to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at noon, we have an all-hands meeting with the science PI, who's basically in charge of all the science activities going mm-hmm. on board the ship. And he basically lays out what is happening each day, and that's actually quite important The weather is dynamic, so therefore Mm -hmm. that has a significant impact on how things will go throughout the day. And so we always have a plan B and a plan C to (laughs) to go along with that. Then I would spend that first four hours of my shift looking at the uh, sub-bottom profiler data, Mm -hmm. printing out or identifying those areas, which I think are probably good candidates for coring. Then after that, I typically am on core processing duty. For the rest of the day, I may actually be part of monitoring the actual coring that's going on itself or sampling the core or photographing the core Mm. or doing one of the many activities associated with handling and managing the core. And then when I'm off at midnight, midway through the cruise, it's daylight most of the time. We get some twilight starting at like four-ish in the morning or something like that. Interesting. twilight for a couple of hours and then it's daylight again. And so that's kind of the time that I have to take pictures. Or if somebody gets me up early enough because there's something really interesting to see, I might take pictures before my my shift starts. But once the shift starts, you are kind of tied to the tasks that you are in charge of. And it's really important to complete those tasks too. There's nobody else there to pick up the slack.
0: Very interesting. That sounds like, you know, quite the day and to do that day in, day out. And I mean, do you have the weekends off or is it every single day?
1: Every single day.
0: Wow. Are there any other instruments or tools, you know, like the Hugan on the research vessel that may be unusual? Like you wouldn't expect it to be on a, a ship?
1: No. The the thing that was really neat, there's a helipad on the ship.
0: Oh but there was okay. no helicopter. Ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> no joyrides. No joyrides. <laughs> yeah. We were
1: never going to be in a situation where um, we were going to be within range for deploying a helicopter or or carrying all that fuel. Mm -hmm. So there were no helicopters. The thing that I found the most fascinating and could watch it day in and day out was doing seal tagging. So Tarzan team was collecting data of the ocean and the ocean-ice interaction using very interesting science partners and those science partners are seals because they can dive very very deep for longer Mm -hmm. periods of time and go places that none of our instrumentation can go genius what happens is they literally install on top of a seal's head which doesn't harm the seal in any way okay a small version of the ctd so a ctd is an instrument that is deployed over the ship to collect information about the ocean from, from the oh, surface right. to mm-hmm. depth. It is a very large piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. Well, they have managed to miniaturize the CTDs for seals. And so their goal is to find seals that have shed all of the previous year's fur, okay. attach the CTD to their head, which will be, remain there until they molt the following year. And in that period of time, as the seals essentially go to the surface and then dive and come back to the surface, mm-hmm. the data that they collect in that period of time is transmitted back to the scientists in real time.
0: That's so cool. And, gather. And, they're,
1: and they're basically collecting all this data in the period of time that, that we can't, you know, in the dead Good of point. winter. And so we have a better idea of what the ocean ice interface, what is happening at the ocean ice interface hmm. in periods of time that we cannot do any monitoring.
0: Very cool. Yeah, that's genius.
1: They also have permission. They have to get permits. They have to get very special permits in order to interact with these animals.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there anything unexpected you encountered during the expedition?
1: For me, yes. Uh, Everything actually on this cruise was unexpected because it's something I've never done before. Mm -hmm. But that said, the crossing of Drake's Passage was pretty tough. Uh, It generally, at least according to most people, is tough because Mm. the weather is always bad. And in particular, when we made our crossing, there were actually two low-pressure cyclones back-to-back. Yeah. So the waves were particularly rough. 20 feet, probably, maybe more. It's very difficult to tell, believe it or not, when you're— up high in on the on the bridge mm, of the ship, makes sense, it yeah. all just looks big. Okay. And if I wasn't on the bridge, I was basically sleeping because the truth of the matter is, it makes you super super tired to be in in that much motion. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, has the Thor project changed your skills or style of photography in any way?
1: Obviously, the more pictures you take, the easier it is to adjust to changing conditions. The environment in which you take the pictures obviously is unique. So there's a learning curve associated with that. And so it helps you obviously learn to compensate for vibration. Lighting is very, very different there because uh, out where it's all ice, it's very, very bright and very flat. So you Mm -hmm. have to figure out ways to give depth to your images. There's a big, big difference between doing photography for documentary science versus taking pictures of things Mm -hmm. that are artistically pleasing and still making sort of both work together to tell a story. Mm -hmm. So that part of it, I think, I learned a lot about uh, that probably is an improvement.
0: Judging by your photographer website, it is fantastic. And I just want to say thank you again for coming to speak with us about glacier sampling and contributing not only about glacier sampling, but the, the meteorite search. It, it's going to be a really cool exhibition that we put on for rice. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you as part of the rice community, too. So thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed hearing about the science and adventure of the Thor Expedition. Please visit longitude.site for the episode transcript. If you are around Houston this spring, stop by the Rice University Library to view an exhibition of photographs from Linda's collection. Our exhibit will be available for display at other university libraries upon request. If you are a college student interested in leading conversations for our next podcast series, please write to us at podcast at longitude.site. Join us next time for more unique insights on longitude sound bites.